Hello and thanks for listening. I'm Jude Hill and in this special series of podcasts I'll be in conversation with church leaders and invited guests. During 2021 we are marking the centenary of key moments in the partition of Ireland, the establishment of Northern Ireland and the changes that resulted in terms of British-Irish relationships. Throughout the year the leaders of the Church of Ireland, Catholic, Methodist and Presbyterian churches along with the President of the Irish Council of Churches have been reflecting together on the response and responsibility of churches on issues of identity and belonging past, present and future. As part of that work, they issued a joint statement on St. Patrick's Day. In that, they acknowledged that some may struggle with the concept of shared history when it comes to this centenary year, but they want to focus in on the reality of living in a shared space on these islands and how to make it a place of belonging and welcome for all. So as part of their contribution to the task of building that shared space, church leaders have developed this podcast series where they will discuss with their guests some of the identity-based challenges that have impacted our society in the past and continue to undermine social cohesion. They'll reflect on the challenges of leadership in this context and share their hopes for the future. Just to let you know, this conversation was recorded at the end of September. With all of that in mind, I'm joined by the Church of Ireland, Archbishop John McDowell and Aidan Connolly from the Northern Ireland Retail Consortium. Archbishop, take us back to the St. Patrick's Day statements, um, which probably seems quite a while ago now. What was important to you within that and what have you really carried forward in the work since then? Uh, the St. Patrick's Day statement was itself just a point in a process. And before this year, we had discussed what we were going to do in what was a very, very significant year. You know, there had been five years of centenaries before that, and they'd been navigated pretty well north and south. But it was pretty clear that 21 was going to be very difficult everywhere and also beyond that. So even in 2020, we'd had a few discussions. Well, I suppose the options were to do nothing or to do something individually, each of the churches, or to try to do something together. And as you know, when you try to do something together in Northern Ireland, um, it's difficult enough. And we knew we wouldn't be able to do that quickly or off the bat. So we had two or three months of conversations with each other. We sat around the table and were very honest with one another about our experiences of growing up in Northern Ireland and our view of the past. And you know, the, the one thing about the history of Northern Ireland is you can't say, well, that went well. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are um, moments in it when things certainly didn't go well. So uh, we decided we would, the first thing we would do is try to map out, broadly speaking, what we agreed on in terms of, and even if that was only an agreement to differ well. And when we were discussing, it's quite a long statement, St. Patrick's Day statement, the important thing is it's done together. And we decided that there was a need to fess up pretty clearly about our own shortcomings. So that was very significant, where we put in words, phrases like, in the past, we are, we know we have been captive churches, and not captive to the word of God, but captive to the idols of state and nation. Uh, and where we've said, in order for this, because if the peace process has taught us anything, it's that you would only get anywhere by very patient talking and listening. Uh, so we decided we would try to open up these spaces to share our own stories, but for other people as well uh, to be involved. So it was part of that process. It was important to get it in St. Patrick's Day. It was an important day. 
obviously it was Patrick's common heritage for all of us and uh, we felt that that set the tone and, and uh, you know it was picked up quite a bit by other commentators who were using similar words and phrases and we felt that we had helped to set the tone just a little bit. And was there a sense with this cluster of relationships with the, the church leaders that there was something different going on between you and that you wanted people to know that that was the case? I don't know if there was necessarily anything different than perhaps had gone on with other church leaders. There were a couple of um, lucky sort of chances in that the moderator was there for two years, which isn't usually the case. So and that's you know so sometimes uh, um, he can come in here, she can come in, and it can be almost as though they're out before you've got to know them. Whereas this and you know David Bruce is a very straightforward but very very kind of capable thinker, uh, and uh, we find that we were at least able to talk to one another and understand what it was we were trying to do, what we're uh, trying to achieve, uh, and that we were patient enough with each other to do it. Now, there were a couple of bumps in the road, as you can expect, and I mean, there weren't any raised voices, but there were certainly, you know, you had to go home at night and think, that's not necessarily how I would have seen that. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, and can you give us a sense of what, uh, what those bumps in the road were, or maybe how you're thinking reconfigured um, as a result of that? Well, to some degree, you've, you have had it recently in this business around a word or a phrase, the partition uh, of Ireland. You know, there are innumerable books published this year called The Partition of Ireland. Dermot Ferreter's one very good book. Yet in certain contexts, the word takes on a completely different meaning. And one of, the, I think, certainly my learnings from that is it's very different for someone in the Republic of Ireland coming from a particular tradition, whether that's a labour slightly greenish labour tradition, how that word sounds in their mouth and how they can approach it. And for instance, even a nationalist political leader in Northern Ireland, there's a nuance there that only very careful listening and not the re I mean, history is about, not about revising the past, but about revising your understanding of the past. So people who talk about revisionism are just talking about how history's done, uh, you know. Uh, so th that word partition was much pricklier for me, it was an historical fact, in a sense. And for others, it was a very, very prickly subject. And as you mentioned there, you, you haven't escaped controversy in the year. And, and what we're, we're talking about now is that fury over the, the church service and President Higgins' decision uh, not to attend. What else do you feel at this point can be learned from that? Or what are your um, reflections around how the churches ha have handled this event? Well, I suppose you could say you can't be too careful, but we've certainly felt we were being as careful as we could humanly be in terms of our uh, interactions with officials in Northern Ireland, Great Britain, and um, in uh, in Ireland. Um, and had had we the remotest idea that that was going to cause a problem, we certainly would have suggested a couple of fixes. You know, we would have, we would have been like Mr. Shevchevich. We would have said we can fix that, um, and if it couldn't have been fixed then we would have quietly just let it go. We wouldn't have made a big issue of it, just let it go. Uh, it would have been one less guest, a very significant guest, a very, you know, somebody we'd love to have had there. But anybody who's involved in the process of peace and reconciliation knows that you have um, difficulties and you have disappointments uh, and you carry on. John, moving on from that, then you've selected a theme for our conversation today and you've brought Aidan along. Fill us in about what you want to talk about. 
Well, I mean, I've brought it on because um, I'm very interested in what the business community have been doing over the past number of years. Um, in the 1980s, just before the Single European Act was signed, I was the Assistant Director of the CBI in Northern Ireland, so worked at that for three or four years. And um, Now, those were very different days. There was direct rule, and it was like a medieval court. You had to get the ear of the Secretary of State in order to get anything done. But here we have a group of business people who are caught in, you know, uh, not quite, I wouldn't quite say crossfire, but a lot of cross currents and have to navigate the boat. And the other interesting thing about it was, you know, that uh, survey that uh, said that I think it was something like 75%, some very high percentage of people trusted the business community on this issue that is on, you know, around the protocol around Brexit. And I think it was 2% uh, had confidence in the politicians. And then they polled the next week and it was up to 3% sort of thing. Uh, 33% increase, but, you know, not great nevertheless. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, I was interested just to hear how that felt to be, you know, such a significant player. Because businesses, by and large, work in the background, but this time they've had, they've really had to mm -hmm. uh, come out into the limelight to some degree. Limelight's maybe the wrong word. Yeah. Aidan, just following on from that then, you've, you've become this high-profile voice to, to governments and, and media. What's that been like for you personally? It's been really interesting uh, because um, people think that it's about 90% of my job is talking to the media and that sort of thing. It's about 5% or less of my job. Um, the majority of it is having meetings and policy papers and, and legal stuff. But um, the Archbishop John's absolutely right. This isn't what we're supposed to be doing. Business guys are supposed to be doing business. I'm supposed to be worried about taxes and regulations and, and stuff like this. And, and the reason that I, what we did feel the need to come to the fore was quite simply 2016 to 2019, we did not have an assembly. We did not have the politicians shouting um, on our behalf. They were shouting at each other, but they weren't particularly shouting on, on our behalf. And that's why we started working together. I started to try and pull a few people together and that ended up coming together in really in 2018 as different groups that we brought to meet the commission, to meet the then prime minister, to meet uh, member states, but it was still a very loose conglomeration. And then that came back together in 2019 with the Withdrawal Act, when it was going through the withdrawal bill as it was. And we, I find it the, and I'm the convener and not the chair because everyone around that table is absolutely equal. And it was one of the founding things um, that I made that no sector is left behind and everybody is absolutely equal. But we came together because we knew that there needed to be amendments to that withdrawal act or withdrawal bill as it was. But we knew that they were never going to pass. He had an 80 majority. There was no way they were going to pass. But what we want to do and what we did do was we broke the narrative that the EU and the Prime Minister were saying that Northern Ireland is sorted under the Northern Ireland Protocol. And not only that, we got all five of the major parties here to sign up to those amendments. Whether we're sitting or not, they went out and said we approve of these amendments. That was the first time in 14 years that those political parties had done that. So, you know, we, it wasn't our base setting. And I definitely shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I kind of pinch myself now and then, you know, talking to you know the European president, the vice president of the European Union, or prime ministers and special advisors and, and Europe ministers and all this sort of thing. And I still kind of see myself as the wee fellow from Portadown who just happened <laughs> to get lucky and can talk a lot. Um, but what, what I've tried to do is to try, firstly, base everything on facts. Absolute. Every, everything has to be pragmatic and based on facts. And then the other thing I try to do, and sometimes with a little 
sharpness at the end and on my Twitter feed is to try and take really, really complex ideas like trade ideas, legal ideas, technical ideas, things like sanitary and phytosanitary and, and what those mean and why there needs to be protection and try and make them really simple and, and explain them. And if I can make one or two people exp uh, understand a little bit more about why these rules are needed and why this negotiation is needed, I think my job will be done. And that lucid talk poll that John referred to there, of the, the confidence people um, really place within the, the business representatives over the, the politicians at times. It's, how do you see that? Is that a, a pressure, a privilege or, or both? It's a privilege. It's also, I'm one of a group of people who work very, very hard. And we will be front and centre for some of the stuff, but the majority of the work that we do is, is not the, the, the forefront. Um, I'm thinking like people like Seamus Lehany from Now Logistics UK, Stephen Kelly from Manufacturing Northern Ireland, Stuart Anderson from, from the CBI, one of the brightest young minds in, in, in business that I've, I've seen in, in a very long time. And, and there's lots of us sort of working together. And I sort of think that you know, it's not just about business, it's not just about pounds, shillings and pence. You will notice that everything that we do, any of the statements we put out or any of the interviews we do, we always try and bring it back to the man and woman in the street. What does this mean for our Northern Ireland households who have half the discretionary income of Great British households? John, you've intervened publicly quite a number of times in the, the Brexit journey. How would you sum up some of the pains at the moment in the, the border diocese that, that you're part of? Fill us in about what is going on with people. To some degree, people uh, can't talk about it. You know, and they don't practically want to talk about it because they kind of recognise that their concerns are very marginal, seem very marginal and very peripheral. But I mean, I got involved originally because it was very clear to anybody who had uh, either been through the last round of negotiations to do with a single European Act and then onwards to Maastricht that this wasn't just a normal political moment or even a normal political crisis. There was something extraordinarily uh, significant. I mean, there really were tectonic plates beginning to shift. You know, it was taking place at a strange time in world politics where Northern Ireland was looking as though it was beginning to become like a mature democracy and the rest of the world was beginning to look like Northern Ireland. Uh, you had a lot of disruptors coming into, uh, into power. I hadn't lived on the border before. I mean, when I grew up in East Belfast, so the border was the Ormer Road. You kind of got, got a nosebleed when you went, you know, you went beyond the Ormer Road. But um, it became that the border just either didn't matter in the sense that for those who wanted it, they were secure in their mind that it was there and was never, wasn't, wasn't going to be moved without their say-so. For those who have never liked it, it might as well not have been there, so far as their everyday lives were concerned. And there was, you, you, just, you could really feel the kind of tensions that were growing. And that first intervention I made, which was the open letter to Boris Johnson, which to be honest with you, I thought would never, you know, it would be a one-day kind of a wonder. And I suppose, again, it was a fortune thing. Tony Connolly picked it up. And I think that's what made it, gave it legs, kind of way. And there I was saying, you know, in Ireland, there are certain points that bear all the weight of Irish history from time to time. To some degree, for instance, Drumcree did. It wasn't just about a parade. It was about the whole kind of weight of Irish history being brought to bear in a particular place at a particular time. And I think that was what was happening around Brexit and around particularly the fracturing of relationships. Um, and all of us knew that when the planets aligned with the Irish government, the British government, with a bit of willingness in Northern Ireland, with the US, when they came into something like an alignment, good things happened. 
And when the relationships broke down, bad things happened, and it took a very long time to build the relationships back again, as we all, as we all know, when friends fall out, it takes a long, long time. That, that letter was a bit of a beacon in two ways. One, it gave people like myself in, in business uh, an idea that other people were thinking the same thing. And secondly, it was an impetus for then us to start moving and start thinking about it. So I, I wouldn't ever underestimate what you were putting down in words was what a lot of us were, were thinking, I suppose. The way that we sort of translated it was the fact that the best thing about the Good Friday Agreement was the actual settlement. And I don't mean that this is settled because the peace process is ongoing, but there was an actual settlement that you could be Irish, you could be British, you could be Northern Irish, or you could be any of the above. And what the Brexit idea, and, and from it turning into a trade issue, into a constitutional issue, into a green and orange issue, what it did was pick the scab, and suddenly we were back into this maelstrom of identity politics that, quite honestly, I have great fear that it is going to be the reverberation of this, these politics we're going to feel for, for my son's generation and my grandkids' yeah. generation. I mean, it's funny, I mean, I, there are a couple of things that I'd like to ask you about. I mean, um, because of the interventions, particularly of the business group, but of others as well, the church is to a much more limited degree. Um, politics are a bit different uh, in the sense that it's not just going in and ticking a box once every four or five years and forgetting about it. It's this business of a constant conversation between what's up there and civic society. And, you know, I think we don't want to lose that. A lot of the time, and, you know, people who, who have been uh, uh, voyeurs in, in Northern Ireland politics for, for this past 30-odd year, years will know that every time the business community put their head about the, above the parapet, they either got it slapped down or they were basically told to, as I think the colloquialists, wind your neck in. Yeah. Um, but they, they, they were afraid to do that. But now they are standing up. They are willing to hold people to account the parties, you know, the parties can be very helpful. One of the most frustrating things for us in business is they asked us for a lot of facts and figures, and instead of using it to find solutions, they use it to beat the head off the, one of the other political parties, which is, yeah, it's 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 just not not really yeah. good. But what you find is as well that we are now in a, a social media existence where. If you're in business and you're on Twitter or you're on Facebook or wherever, that there will be lots of people who will tell you how bad you are and how wrong you are. And the worst ones I get is usually about my name. And because obviously it's Adon, it's spelt A-O-D-H-F-A-D-N, that obviously I'm anti-British, I'm a rampant Republican. And uh, there, there's some, I, I tweet in a, in a few languages, right? But there was one tweet that I put up not long after he went on Twitter, about 2018, and he tweeted in Irish, right? But I grew up with Irish in house, my first language, very proud of it. Um, and look, this is the real face of the Northern Ireland retail consortium. I sort of, so what? And I suppose there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of frustration out there and there's a lot of projection that's going on. And I did an event and one of the things that I said was that you cannot discount the feelings of loyalism, the feelings of unionism, they have to be listened to. You can explain how these trade things work, but you cannot discount them. You cannot do people the disservice. And by God, the, the maelstrom of, of, uh, of hate that I got from, from Republicans and, and nationalists saying, no, they're wrong, they voted for Brexit, mm. they, you know. And I think there needs to be a, 
I suppose there needs to be that pragmatism, I'll keep coming to that word, but that, because that's what businesses had to do, put their own feelings aside and, and work on that pragmatism. But there also needs to be a chance where everybody sort of takes a step back and goes, whoa, mm. we have to work with these people and live with these people after this. Pragmatism can only really work if there's leadership somewhere else, if someone's creating a space for, and I don't mean making big steps, but the way I'm, the way I now think about society in Northern, political society, civic society, is that there are no hosts anymore. We're all kind of guests at the table. Nobody's at the head of the table being the boss and setting the agenda and having the first word and the last word. Uh, and that to me is, you know, we've come from being a very fragile, rudimentary democracy to now deepening the roots. I mean, I think this has done more, and it may sound a bit paradoxical, has done more to deepen the roots of the Good Friday Agreement. Now, it has also shaken the foundations a little bit, or shaken the scaffolding, to use that word, a bit, or a fair bit. But nevertheless, the, uh, the, the fact that civic society is now saying, we have a legitimate say here. We know, again, it's just, it's just one word from us. There are lots of other words that have to be said. And that's very important for us in the churches to learn in Ireland, because we, for years, felt that we had the first word and the last word. Uh, and now we just have to say, look, we think we have a word to say that's distinctive, and uh, we think can contribute to what well, this famous common good, that there are certain things that will not benefit me unless you also have them. Uh, and, you know, and that's how political democracy properly works around that idea of a common good. And on that disquiet within loyalism, what are your reflections? What more could have been done along the way to actually listen in or, or just sound that out uh, before the moment? I honestly do not remember. I, obviously, to put it, just to put it in sort of proportion and context, we all remember the Anglo-Irish Agreement and the hundreds of thousands of people who came out to protest against that. People, garden centre unionists, you know, people you would never have thought would have been out in the street. And you compare that to the relatively small, I think quite managed things that are happening now. So, and I have to be honest, I mean, I, I would probably be known as someone who's spoken about, not, not you know, oh, there's the man that speaks about Brexit walking down Royal Avenue, but I've had very few people talk to me about the protocol. They all want to talk to me about COVID, and they want to talk about all sorts of things, but not about the protocol. So I really do not think that um, it's quite that the, the um, it's quite so widespread or deeply felt as some people are saying. And as we've mentioned, you have interjected a number of times. What would you say into this moment then, when there is the ongoing uncertainty over the implementation of the protocol, for example? Well, it'd be a mixture of pragmatism and kind of leadership. I mean, uh, you know, a bit of elementary education kind of helps in that the commission, they're full of lawyers who have technical fixes. That's what they'll do when you ask them for something. They'll fix it. They'll try to fix it. You know, it's the council who might do the political stuff. And, you know, we just need to uh, calm down and say, just, you know, just because I can't get my Marks and Spencer's comquat, <laughs> you know. Other supermarkets are available. <laughs> yeah, or whatever it, whatever it might be. That th things can be fixed and that we can certainly, and I have been very, I mean, I was very critical about the fact that the protocol was no longer signed than certain politicians were saying how it could be got rid of. People who should have been promoting the benefits of it, in a sense. So I thought it was a very bad, you know, it was just a political uh, misstep. So even on, uh, the big thing was sausages, the sausage yeah. wars. And I hate to tell people, but if people think that that was a trade war, that wasn't even a, a trade handbags at dawn. Right? <laughs> the, the, it, was this, it was nothing, it was a blip. Everybody was talking about sausages. 
We buy less than 4% of our sausages from Great Britain. We actually have some of the best sausages in the world here in Northern Ireland. Um, we are a net exporter of beef, pork and lots of other things. We're 1.9 million people and in fact we feed 10 million people. It was never going to, to, to be an issue. I think one of the things that has happened and one of the great tragedies of what has happened over this past nine months with this is that it wasn't given a chance to embed. If it was given a chance to embed and you you deal with the problems as they come up rather than people throwing hand grenades, not literally, thank God, but people, you know, people interjecting in, in, in unhelpful ways. But this part of this is a manufactured political crisis. And because of certain polls that came out, people, we have already been in election mode for nine months rather than trying to, again, work, work with that, that sort of pragmatism. And, and I suppose even within the, the business community, we feel a responsibility. And the reason we feel a responsibility is everyone talks about the three strands of the Good Friday Agreement. To me, there's two pillars, and that is peace, as in the absence of violence and being able to talk, which is where the churches come in. And the other pillar is prosperity. So I have always believed that if people have a good education, if people have a good health service, if people have a job to go to in the morning, they are not going to go out to commit acts of criminality. They are they're going to see... There's the old saying that uh, contentment breeds apathy. And you know what? We could do with a wee bit of apathy right now, but to do that, we need to get that foreign direct investment. We need to get that spirit of uh, an atmosphere of investment, an atmosphere where we are creating jobs. But to do that, people across the world are looking at Northern Ireland right now and what they're seeing is overblowing headlines about protests and political instability. You know, it's the old one of uh, if there's not a political crisis in Northern Ireland, wait 10 minutes. And that's no way for us to build that investment uh, environment. And that's where we're really going to see those opportunities from the protocol when we get FDI. And the biggest thing stopping that is political instability. Just to reflect at this point the different positions, obviously many unionists and their leaders would say that the protocol is taking Northern Ireland backwards and, and must go and the UK government has said they want to rewrite it. What would you say about the impact of all of this continued uncertainty on peace and reconciliation and community relations, John, at, at this point? You know, proper reconciliation is still fresh in the package. It hasn't been taken out yet. What we have is a certain degree of... I'm old enough, I'm probably I don't know, 15 years maybe older than the other one, maybe, maybe even more, <laughs> but uh, I'm old enough to have had to learn maths by... Euclid, and Euclid's second proposition is that parallel lines cannot enclose a space, and parallel lines can't enclose a space. And we've been running in these parallel lines, and we can't create what Augustine calls, and I'm sorry to be all theological about it, common objects of love, which is what binds a community together, common objects of all of our objects of affection, or nearly all of them are for one community or another, and we have never been able to. Um, and we'll not be able to do that uh, until we learn to do things together, even difficult. And, uh, you know, there was a, a thing years ago, or a few years ago, the Irish Church's Peace Project, where we were beginning to get people into rooms in villages around Northern Ireland and saying, this is your neighbour who you've lived with for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, whatever it is, and you're the, he's your friend, but you don't trust him. Why is that? and to begin to get those hard conversations going at that level where it really matters. Uh, and until we have people who 
until we have a society, particularly political leadership, which sees the need for that and isn't invested in division. You know, I, I have had more conversations in this past two years with loyalists and with the, the PUP and with um, people from, from, from unionist backgrounds and, you know, some of them from special advisors to community workers. And it's always been respectful. They've always looked to find out what I think, um, to explain the, the complex trade stuff, to see where I, I actually fit. And, and sometimes I have been asked my position on the, the constitutional question and how that is affected by trade and that sort of thing. And I have a very simple answer for it. I do not take a constitutional position. The way that I look at this is that if we are staying in the union, then I want this place to be better than when I came into it. And if we are going into United Ireland, guess what? I want it to be better than it was when, uh, when, 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 when I came into it. And if nothing changes whatsoever, I still want to leave this place better than I came back. And, and that, to me, is it's one of the reasons why I do the charity stuff. It's one of the reasons why I, I do this job. And, you know, one of the reasons I took this job whenever I, I took the job, I said, yes, certainly, more than happy to, to represent retail. But as long as I can represent Northern Ireland and tell people how good Northern Ireland is for investment, tell people how good Northern Ireland is because it's an untapped market for some sorts of mm -hmm. retail. And we've been able to make huge strides in this past, this past, uh, past 10 years that I've been in, in this job. But that's the thing, the more, and, and I think the headlines always grab the riots or the people who are being negative, but there are so many people out there, should it be in the charity sector, the business sector, or, or across communities, who may not see eye to eye on many things, but they're all working to try and make this place a little bit better. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, wouldn't say quite say it keeps me awake at night, but it's the one question, I, what am I going to say to my daughter? This is the best I could do for you. This is the best, you know, and it's not great. And there's this generation coming up here saying, you're busy finding fires and throwing petrol on them while behind you the house is burning, particularly around that climate issue, which, you know, that generation just just completely, it's the number one priority. And we can't fix it unless everybody fixes it. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I do think we're at a bit of a pivot, bit of a hinge point here. To land us in then in the chat, you've touched on it, both of you already. Where are the opportunities for new relationships and new openings to make this place more prosperous and at peace? You want to start, Ed? I think so. <laughs> okay, well, I think that we need to unwrap that package of reconciliation that was talked about earlier on. I think we need to move forward on things like shared spaces, on things like shared education. And I know there's going to be some people who don't agree with me on that. But we need to remove some of the fear, some of the hatred, some of the blind ignorance that there is on both sides about the other side. Because the amount of times that I'm out and people are saying about such and such and, oh, this is the per person from this community, or, oh, I don't think of them like that. I don't think of them in any context other than he's my friend. That's, that's where we, we need to get to and there needs to be a normalization. To do that, there is going to have to be a move and it's going to take our politicians to have the courage to stop overduplication. And for some of them, it may not be a very comfortable conversation because quite frankly, when it comes to election time, division sells. And for me, there needs to be a real sort of coming together of doers rather than talkers. There's a lot of people talking the good game 
Uh, there's a lot of people who can rile people up. What we need is people who can also uh, deliver. And should that be on, on the community side uh, and bringing people together, it should it be. Uh, um, people need to see that there's a dividend from this peace process. And that has to be both peace and economic dividends as well. We need to create that aspiration and, and that's where us in the business community can sort of help with that side. As far as the pace, that's again over to the churches and, and community leaders. I mean, there are big structural things that need to be done and a small regional assembly has a limited ability to do that. There's a big intergenerational job to be done. If you want to have the next generation who can have a home, have a decent job, somebody's going to have to give up something so that they can have something. And that's, you know, that's to do with tax fixes and all, you know, the whole structure of the tax system and a housing system, not so bad in Northern Ireland, but in the Republic that, you know, isn't just broken, but it, it infects the whole economy. It's, you know, it's, a, it's one of the foundational problems, uh, uh, as it were. But I mean, I think I would concentrate on that intergenerational task, that what do we do to leave something significantly better you know, the minute we looks like we are going to be the first generation that hands over something worse than we received, which is an absolute, uh, you know, it really is a disgrace. That's actually quite distressing <laughs> when, you, when you think on it. You know, it's, uh, you know, I, I suppose you're the one who should be uh, the, the quoting scripture, but it's the, it's the, the, uh, the, 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 the love thy neighbour, so who is thy neighbour? Mm -hmm. And it's not just about the people around us now, it's about the future generations. And I think, I think the disappointing thing is that I don't think we're there yet where we are going to leave this place worse. Mm -hmm. I think, again, on your hinge point, this could be a hinge for the good or a hinge mm -hmm. for a move towards the bad. And, yeah. and that's kind of why you have people in business who, again, we shouldn't be doing this. This is not our normal setting, but we're working every hour God sends, and we're talking to everyone who will listen from member states to the Americans to anyone who will listen to that the importance that we get this right. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Aidan uh, and John, for your energy, insights and reflections. And to you who are listening, thank you. This podcast series was supported by a grant from the Northern Ireland Community Relations Council. And just a reminder, this episode is part of a series of podcasts with church leaders as they reflect personally on this centenary year. So do check out the rest of those chats found on all the usual podcast platforms. Enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>